0: Well, hello renaissance church uh, my name is terry kokenauer and uh, i am new i'm not chris i'm in here uh, blessed that Chris gave me the invitation to be able to open up the scriptures and walk through some of God's Word together with you, uh, work together with uh, Jason Bollinger in ministry with uh, Lynx Mission, and uh, have an ever-developing friendship with Chris that I value very much. And so it's very much a joy, it's an honor for me to have some time even digitally with you guys uh, this morning or evening if you're watching this later on. Uh, what I'd like to do is just uh, pray briefly And ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. And then we'll take a little bit of a journey uh, together. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for your great goodness to us. I thank you for the life that you have given to each and every person who happens to listen to this and be listening to this. Lord, I thank you for the ways that you've blessed them. I thank you for the things that you've taught them. For those that have trusted in you, Jesus, I thank you for their faith. God, I pray that for everyone, those who have trusted you and those who have not, that you would be pleased to draw us all closer to you, Jesus. Help us to see the things from your word that we should kill off in order to follow you more closely and those things that we should add in in order to follow you more closely. all of these things, God, for your glory and for our joy and your great name. Amen. Well, what I want to do today is spend a little bit of time with you guys in uh, the New Testament letter to the Hebrews. And uh, it's it's a challenging and exciting letter. Alongside the letter of Romans, It's those two are arguably the two most theologically packed books, letters in the New Testament. And, uh, and we're going to look at a particular section of that. I was thinking about in preparing for this, um, how... The, just the time that we're in, and I don't even have to go into all the details, we all know everything that's going on, but just thinking back about conversations I've been having with people from various different walks of life and different ethnicities and faiths and the common sense and sort of vibe I get off of everyone is uh, we're just fatigued and, and there's a feeling, I was saying the other day, it feels like being in a, a blender of chaotic events and and we're just trying to to catch our breath, just trying to get to the surface of this ocean of calamity we're in and catch our breath. Uh, But in the midst of that, the things that Jesus has called us to remain. And I wanted to look at some really profound truths that were spoken into difficult period of time and that have been encouraging for Christians throughout history that have faced the kind of things we've been in, though technologically different pandemics and government question marks and potential societal upheaval and all of these things, who have faced these things in the past, and these words that we'll look at today have meant a great deal, have been a great bulwark for their faith to proceed through things. Just this past week, I was reading some of the words of St. Cyprian, who lived in the third century, and they, like many other generations, had gone through a legitimate, crazy pandemic on an order of magnitude far beyond what we're going through. A big part of that is because they didn't have the same medicine, of course. But people were dying like crazy. And reading his words and his encouragement to other believers to stay steady in their faith and to not turn aside. And then reading his discouragement about those who, because of... Uh, of a desire to live a luxurious life, or because they want a life of ease, or because of the temptations of sex, or because the worst-case scenario, he said, because of a weakness in their faith, have begun to turn away in the face of all of these things that they were going through way back in the 200s. And, uh, and he moves on to encourage, encourage them and say, but we have this rock, this foundation, uh, even as Chris was just preaching uh, last week, the week before, of, of this foundation we have in Christ. And to stand firm. And so my hope is that together we'll see some of these things in the letter to the Hebrews. Now, Hebrews, we don't really know who wrote this letter. Uh, could have been Paul, could have been some other folks, whoever it was. This was a Jewish individual who was a very much a scholar of the Hebrew faith and their commentaries. Also a Christian, a believer in Christ. So Jewish by ethnicity, a Christian by faith, and really understood what it meant that Jesus, Yeshua, is the Savior, the Messiah. Like When we look at Acts, and we see Paul always going to the synagogues to reason with the Jews and to show his fellow Jews and to show them Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Messiah. uh, The writer of Hebrews really understood that. And so, it can be a bit of an intimidating letter, but I just want to encourage us because as Christians in Christ, uh, you may be like me, I'm not ethnically Jewish. Uh, But yet, what we see is that for those of you like me, in Christ, we're brought into the family of God. And thereby share in uh, promises that God has made uh, and and the plans that He has. Like the image that Paul gives us in Romans is like a, a vine that is grafted into another vine. And so, even though this is a very Jewish letter, if you are not ethnically Jewish, don't think that this doesn't speak to you. For if you have Christ, this is for you. It's for us. Now, one way to think about this letter is, uh, the way I like to put it is, is it's sort of the Jesus is the better fill in the blank. Jesus is, is the better dot, dot, dot. He's, he's the better um, law. He's the better high priest. He's the better Moses. He's the better David, the better Adam, etc. And when we get to chapter 13, we're going to see this new piece of uh, this new aspect of how Jesus is better. And it's speaking to us of how Jesus is the the better sacrifice. And in light of that, how we should live. So if, if you'll open a Bible and turn into the New Testament, get past all the Gospels and Acts and letters and get back there uh, near Peter, and you'll find the letter to the Hebrews chapter 13. So Hebrews chapter 13. So we're toward the tail end of the letter. And I'm going to start... Uh, at verse 11, and we'll get get into some context once we get here. The writer says, we, speaking as Christians, as believers, as people trusting Jesus, he says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now, pause there. Uh, you got to make sure you're thinking of this altar. There's a specific imagery he's using. This isn't like a uh, pop culture altar or some mo- recent movies or something like that. Uh, the, he's speaking, at the time this letter was written, the temple standing in Jerusalem and the sacrificial system of, that we see through the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, all of those laws of how what animals and things and grains to offer for sacrifices, that's still being practiced. And those who are serving the altar, that's the Levitical priesthood, the Levites. So this is a staple of the society, of the Jewish society, of the Jewish culture. This is at the heart of it. And he's saying, we have an altar from which those who are serving in the tent don't even have the right to eat. And this is a figurative altar. Because the Christians, after the sacrifice of Christ, these Jewish Christians, which were the first Christians, they stopped. They stopped the sacrificial system because Christ, as he's explained earlier in the letter, is this once and for all sacrifice. That he, As God spoke in the Old Testament, he's not, he's not satisfied with the, or, or, or the, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins, but the blood of the one and only sinless God, man, offered in place of my sin and your sin has that value, has that power, has that authority, has that place to do that so there is now no other sacrifice that can be given because the once and for all sacrifice has been given and so he's making a very very radical statement it's a paradigm shift in how they're understanding their world like this is what we do we go to the temple we buy the animals we get the sacrifice we do the thing he's saying you've got to think about god in a completely different way now this is this is the whole game has changed you've got to think in a different category than what you're used to and at verse 11 he says for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the who's brought <clears throat> brought who's brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin they're burned outside the camp so the sacrifices are taking place but the bodies of those they're taking out to an unholy place, essentially, a place that's outside where the destruction of those bodies can be performed and they're burned outside the camp. And he says that's, in a sense, that's what happened with Jesus. Verse 12, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. I had the opportunity to visit Israel, actually, for the first time last year. And um, there's a I was serving as a missionary overseas in Europe and we was teaching at a Bible college. We took a bunch of Bible college students to Israel and to Jerusalem. And the exact place of Jesus' crucifixion is debated, but the locations essentially are there. They're outside what would have been the old city gate. And so just like these animals whose bodies are now being discarded, Jesus is sacrificed out in in one of those outside the gate in one of those areas. And then in the second half of verse 12, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. i want to say that again. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Now this, again, remember this is a very Jewish letter. Written by a Jewish author to f- the first audience, would have been a Jewish audience. This was an explosive claim. This is an explosive thing to say. Because you and I might not get this, but the Jewish reader, and in many Jewish readers today as well, would immediately recognize this language. This is the language of desert wandering, this is the language of the Exodus. And it's important to recognize that because the Exodus, yeah, the parting of the waters and all that, but the Exodus story includes that journey out through the desert, being led to the promised land. And that is not just a one-time event, historical that sustained the Jewish people in its retelling for millennia. And that's true. But beyond that, it is a theme that follows through into the New Testament. And the New Testament, if you read it and and see this, it's everywhere in the New Testament. Because with us, through Christ, God is again bringing His people out of bondage. The bondage to sin. And He's leading us onward to His promised place of rest, to this promised land. And so it's this Exodus theme that we see. And this is the language of the Exodus, to go to him outside the camp and to bear the reproach that he endured. And again, the, the writer in saying these things, he's not saying, hey, you know, Jesus is another way to take care of your sin. You're turning away from God. You're not trusting him. He's not saying, well, Jesus is an even better way. He's saying Jesus is now the only way. That the system that was in place was all just a signpost. As Jesus said of himself, that the law and the prophets all point to him. It was just a signpost pointing to Jesus and now he's come. Now this promised one from the Garden of Eden, the one that the man that would come from the woman who would overcome this accuser figure in the Genesis account and one day establish righteousness, though wounded, overcome the enemies of God that was promised through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and to be a descendant of David. And that whole lineage we read in the opening of Matthew's gospel, he's now come. And so it's a new day. It's not just a different way. It's the only way. God's Only way. And this language is also quite scary if you consider it in the context of the Exodus. Um, When he says, go outside the camp, we could be tempted to just think of that as sort of poetic language, like go to him outside the camp, you know, go follow Jesus boldly. and, And there's truth to that. But this language being rooted in the Exodus, it has an extra bite to it. Um, Do you remember the story? Think back on the story of the Exodus. Not the actual parting, escaping out in the plagues in the the river, but getting out. And then what happened in the years afterwards, right? They rebel, they're wandering through the desert, and they have this process whereby they travel for a while through the wilderness, which is like a desert wilderness, right? It's not forests. I remember when I was first studying the Bible, I always thought wilderness meant forest. And then when I discovered it was a desert, I thought, wow, okay, I've got this all wrong. Picture Egyptian desert, right? Rocky landscapes. And they would wander, stop where God had led them to stop, set up the tabernacle, his large tent of worship, set up their tents by tribes, spend a time, until God led them to move on. Then they tear it all down and do it all over again. And though there's disputes about the number of Israelites, after being in captivity for 400 years, this is a massive number of people. Probably as low as three or four hundred thousand, as high as in the millions. I don't care about the exact number. It's a ton of people to move around and to set up tents and tear them down. And this was what they were going through. But I want to Push your thinking about this a little bit further because what did the camp represent? What did camp represent? Well, camp was where the things that were familiar, it was a sense of comfort. Now, wandering the Egyptian desert doesn't sound that comfortable, but it was your tent and your people uh, my family's really into this show right now called Alone. I don't know if you've seen it, but I like survival type stuff. And, uh, and it's just this show where they take a bunch of crazy people into the middle of nowhere, some, someplace nowhere on the globe, the Arctic or Mongolia or wherever, and then they just have to survive. They give them a minimal amount of kit, and they say, see you later, figure it out. And these individual people, when they get their little shelter built, you just see the boost in their morale. And sometimes they've got to move because of uh, weather or supplies or something else along that line. But even when they have to do that and they come back, it's like the, it's this huge task for them. Well, for these folks, it, it would have been multiplied hundreds of thousands, millions of times over in what they were doing. With See, if you left the camp, you were alone in the wild. Uh, We read in scripture of the dangers of raiding bandits and of wild animals and slave traders, not to mention starvation. If you left the camp, you were alone, out on your own. Safety was in the camp. Sense of security was in the camp. If you left the camp, you left what was familiar. Out in the wild, the signs and the symbols are all different. Your usual habits are disrupted. The people you speak with, maybe they don't speak your language or you don't speak theirs. Maybe they don't value what you value. They don't do things the way you think they should be done suddenly you're kind of starting over. If you left the camp, you left comfort. Again, not that the wandering the desert is fantastic, but it was your tent, your family, your tribe, your nation, your habit, your foods, your way of life. When you left the tent, you became the stranger. When you left the camp, you became the alien. You became the foreigner. And to the Hebrew reader, the reader of Hebrews, this would have been a shocking claim because not only would it have meant risking all those things, if you left the camp, you would be rejected by your own people because it meant turning away from the ways of your people and turning your back on the suffering and the things that they had been to. And so going to Jesus outside the camp, it's not just a poetic phrase, it's a call to put faithfulness to Jesus before all other things and that makes sense i mean if there is a god and and we are not him or she or it just in general terms right then it makes sense that if i'm part of this order of things that's created that i would very much that we would very much be how likely it would be we would come up with some wrong conclusions about things and that if that god could communicate with us then he or she or it or whatever could correct these things that we've developed, these beliefs, these habits, these convictions that we might be so sincere about and sincerely wrong. It stands to reason. And so in humility, we come before God who's revealed himself in creation and principally in the person of Christ. In fact, he's communicated so personally that he became one of us. And so it stands to reason that we would then humble everything before Him. This is what the call is to go outside the camp, to put faithfulness to Christ before everything. To not live in your mind as a hyphenated Christian. That I'm not a white Christian or a black Christian. I'm not a conservative Christian or a liberal Christian or a gay Christian or a straight Christian or ex-Christian. I'm just following Christ. That I have a king and a kingdom and all my other convictions and beliefs and ideologies, whether important or not important, I need to submit those to the ultimate truth of who He is and recognize in humility, even if I have pretty good confidence about a lot of things, I'm always pursuing truth and knowing that I, I, I'm still being shaped. He's in the process of working and reworking As C.S. Lewis, the great writer, used an image of an artist. God is the artist shaping us like a sculpture. And he says, you know, if he does a doodle for a child, he might not care very much, but this is the work, the great love of his life, the work of his life, and he's gonna make it perfect, however much he has to rub and scrape and rework the statue. And that involves change and pain and discomfort for us because we have things we think that are right and we're inc- we're wrong about them like a child that wants to run into the street and the parent's going to pull him back cuz the child doesn't know and if they had the words the child would scream injustice this is wrong i was made to run after these cars that are riding by and the parent says no i know i know a better way this isn't i understand you're crying out but this is not what is best for you it's a it's a humbling place before god following jesus and to go to him Outside the camp. Well, the writer of Hebrews continues on uh, with what he's doing. Before we get to that point, um, I want you to consider, take time as a way of applying this for yourself. Think about what does this mean for you. Because you might be nodding and agreeing or maybe disagreeing, that's fair. You don't have to agree with me, that's for sure. Take it to Scripture and be with Jesus and have conviction about where you land. But as a way of applying this for your life and my life, take some time and think about what would it mean in your life to go out, quote-unquote, outside the camp. In prayer, consider that. You don't have to do that now. Take some time later. Get before God. Be quiet. Find a time when you're not going to be interrupted. Put the phone on airplane, shut the laptop, and just pray, God, what am I not seeing that you've put around me? What does it mean for me? Does it mean that I talk to the stranger or the foreigner? Does it mean that I go get involved in something that maybe I've you've been stirring in my heart, but I haven't been paying attention to, and I give more of myself to you that I've been holding back? Does it mean, God, that you want me to Go off to a foreign land and carry the gospel and learn a culture and a language and help a church grow there. Ask him. It's a dangerous and glorious question, but I encourage you to take time to do that. The writer of the Hebrew goes on, and this is the where I'm going to land, and we'll end up finishing out our time because he didn't stop. See, there's kind of an obvious question to this, which is, well, why, why, why go out to the camp? I mean, why, why does, why? do this? Why do we need to do this? Why should we do this? If he's paid for sin, if he's achieved our redemption and all these things, why is this such a thing? And then we look at Hebrews 13, 14, and he says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Every nation, every kingdom, every dominion, every authority on this earth has an expiration date. And there is a coming kingdom that God has declared will arrive where He is going to come and dwell. We see in Revelation with His people and heaven comes to earth in this renewed creation that Romans tells us the whole creation's groaning for this day to come and it's going to be an imperishable city where the kingdom of God dwelling, where His presence and His authority is known and is in effect will be complete. An eternal kingdom. That is the city we are waiting for. And that is why, for me, I'm looking to that. That's my hope. Where for me, when I go outside the camp and I have people treat me like I'm an idiot because I believe the Bible's true, or they think I'm a fool because I trust Jesus. Or or I go take my family and my life for a decade off or nearly a decade off into Eastern Europe uh, doing missions. And I and I look at the world around us today with viruses and financial problems and political ridiculousness and all of these things going on in a nation that's bifurcated down to its core and information that we don't know if we can trust or, we, or not. And I couldn't be less fearful. I couldn't have, I don't think, more peace. Not because it's not troubling things, but because I'm not placed, my hope and faith is not in the circumstances in this world. See, when you're looking for the city to come and the King who will dwell in that city and who by faith in Christ dwells in us now by His Spirit, then you have a hope that is kept in Christ and is set free from all the circumstances of this life. And however painful, however scary, however chaotic things get here, it's as bad as it could possibly get. Because as Paul said, to live now is Christ, and to die, it's gain. It's liberation from everything that is a struggle. And not that we seek to die or anything of that. We seek faithfulness, but it's a hope. It's an assured future hope that sets you free from the attempts of this world to tell you to be afraid and to run and to live scared. There's a true freedom in Christ, a freedom that is contained in the hope of the cross and that through that bears out in loving works and deeds for the cause of Christ and the good of other people. And that is what Jesus did. Because He didn't have to leave the glory of heaven, but He did it because it's His nature to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, to bless us at a cost to Himself though my salvation adds nothing to God. There was nothing missing in God that He needed my peace. It's His nature to do that. That kind of love that decides to do good regardless of what the other person does exists because it, it generates from God. He's its source. All that love, the justice, the mercy, the grace, everything we, we desire in this life, everything our society is crying out for, the genesis of those righteous motives come from the person of God, and we will dwell with Him in the city that is to come. And so, I'll close with the words of Hebrews 12 to Where Jesus is our example, he says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And that joy set before him, we see in John 17 when he's looking and speaking to the Father, saying, glorify me with the glory. He's looking to the return of the unity with God. And that's what we're looking to in the city that is to come. And so I pray that as you hear and and hopefully meditate on these things, you find the peace, you find the peace and the joy that comes in Christ so that we can deal and live honestly in our circumstances, but live boldly for Christ with a freedom that just makes people wonder, how how can you feel that way with everything that's going on? And there becomes the opportunity for you to share your faith with someone else. Let me pray for us. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To contact us or find out more information, visit rin churchorg